Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely uh, to be with you today. As we open up God's word this morning, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we humbly ask that by your spirit, you would come alongside us now, that you would teach us and that indeed our hearts would burn within us as we turn to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue our series of talks on finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Patrick, a couple of Sundays ago, asked a very good question. He gave us this verse from Luke chapter 24, verse 27, when on that first Easter Sunday, as two downcast disciples walked on the road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus came to them. And Luke writes, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. And the question was, what do we imagine Jesus spoke about? Well, I guess we won't know this side of eternity. But as we look at the Old Testament scriptures, how do they point to Jesus and speak of him? So as Judith mentioned, so far I've looked at Noah, Abraham, Jacob, and this week we turn to Joseph. Now, if you're anything like us and you're watching one of those multi-episode TV dramas, you come to appreciate those recaps at the start of a new episode to remind you of what on earth did happen last week. So as we start a, a brief recap on the story of Joseph, which occupies the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis. We're probably around the period 1800 to 1900 BC. Jacob had 12 sons, including Joseph and Benjamin, the youngest of the 12. Jacob showed favoritism towards Joseph over the other sons, including at the age of 17, giving him a richly ornamented robe. Joseph's coat of many colours. The brothers start getting jealous. Then God starts giving Joseph certain dreams, and these point to a day when Jacob and the 11 brothers will bow down before Joseph. Unwisely, with the naivety of youth, he's not slow in letting his brothers know this, and this just fuels their hatred even more. So the brothers planned to kill him, but in the end sold him to some Midianite merchants. Why kill him when you can get some extra cash? They take Joseph off to Egypt and they sell him into slavery. There he's purchased by Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, and with God's blessing, does such a good job, he rises to be in charge of Potiphar's household. Things take a turn for the worse, however, when he rejects the advances of Potiphar's wife and she falsely accuses him, leading to Joseph being put into jail. There God blesses him again. And in prison, he interprets two dreams for other members of Pharaoh's staff, one of whom the cupbearer is reinstated back into the service for Pharaoh. Pharaoh then has two dreams, which nobody can interpret. And the cupbearer then remembers his encounter with Joseph. So Joseph, after two years in prison, is duly summoned and he alone gives the interpretation of the dreams that Egypt will have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. 
Joseph advises Pharaoh a strategy to manage the food. And Pharaoh is so impressed by both Joseph's godly discernment and his wisdom that he makes Joseph his second in command at the age of 30. The seven years of plenty come and they stored up huge quantities of food. Then the seven years of famine follow, not only in Egypt, but in the neighboring lands. So hearing there was food to buy in Egypt, 10 of the brothers head down from Canaan to buy food. Joseph, recognizing his brothers, conceals his identity from them, choosing instead to devise several tests to see if the jealousy that forced him into slavery had changed over time. When Joseph threatens to keep Benjamin as a slave, sorry, Judah, one of the brothers, pleads Joseph to take him instead. His words then start the restoration of the whole family. Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers and now instructs them to return to Canaan, get their aging father Jacob and relocate the whole household to Egypt. There they settled and were fruitful with Jacob spending the last 17 years of his life there. It's a wonderful story, ideal for the West End, full of rich ingredients for Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Well, as his life came to an end, Jacob asked Joseph to bury him in Canaan, which he and his brothers do. And with that important context of the story so far, Keith is now going to bring the reading to us. The reading is from Genesis chapter 50, and I'll be reading verses 12 to 21. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had brought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Well, thank you, Keith. We can see there are many parallels between Joseph and Jesus. For example, both were 
much-loved sons of their fathers. Both were rejected by their own people, including their brothers. Both were sold for silver. Both left either by choice or circumstance their exalted status and became slaves or servants. Both were wrongly accused and delivered over to death. Both were stripped of their clothing. Both were condemned with two others. But we have to be careful to be able to see the wood from the trees. Fundamentally, Joseph serves as a model for the work of Christ because he saved his people. Verse 20 in in our reading, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, with the, the severe famine, many of the Israelites would have faced certain death. The family from whom the Messiah would come is saved from extinction by God, all because one man, Joseph, was willing to love and forgive. And yes, at the heart of both Joseph and Jesus' stories is the theme of forgiveness. In Joseph's case, there was clearly the act of forgiving his brothers. It would have been so easy for him to have kept his resentment and anger towards them and ultimately got even. In Jesus' case, forgiveness was at the heart of his life, death and resurrection. He taught the need to forgive. Matthew 18, verses 21 to 22. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. He he demonstrated it. As he hung on the cross, there was the immediate earthly forgiveness of those who crucified him as he pleads, Father, forgive them as they do not know what they are doing. And he provided God's means for forgiveness. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. So forgiveness flowing through the story of Joseph and the life of Jesus. So do grab a Bible and let's look at our passage today. Genesis chapter 50, verses 12 to 21. And see how it can help us to think about forgiveness. Well, firstly, what is forgiveness? Psychologists generally define forgiveness as a conscious, deliberate decision to release feelings of resentment or vengeance toward a person or group who has harmed you regardless of whether they actually deserve your forgiveness. So to forgive is to stop blaming or being angry with someone for something that person has done or to not punish them for something. Now, the topic of forgiveness is complex and vast. So we're just going to very much touch the surface today. But it is something that can have a profound impact on and in our lives. So I want to just briefly speak on four aspects from this passage at the end of Joseph's story. 
If you want to read more, I can thoroughly recommend this book by R.T. Kendall, Total Forgiveness, full of his own personal testimony and deep biblical teaching. So our first thing, firstly, accepting forgiveness. After Jacob's death, verse 15, the brothers say, what if Joseph holds a grudge and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They fear he's going to get even. So they concoct a plan to secure Joseph's forgiveness and come and plead in their father's name for forgiveness. Joseph's response when their message came to him, he wept, verse 17. The American pastor and writer Max Lucado writes of the sadness and frustration of Joseph. What more do I have to do, his tears implore. I've given you a home. I've provided for your families. Why still do you mistrust my forgiveness? And in many ways too, we can become like Joseph's brothers, doubting God's forgiveness. We may not yet have taken those first steps of faith because we look at our lives and think, how can God possibly forgive and unconditionally love me? Or we may have been a Christian for a number of years and think back to mistakes we've made and wonder, how can God be so patient and keep on forgiving me? Well, the answer, we look to the cross. We see what Jesus did for us. And we realize, as we shall later sing, and like a flood, his mercy reigns. Unending love, amazing grace. Secondly, forgiveness and judging. The pleading of the brothers leads Joseph to a profound statement about his life and God's purposes in it. His initial response, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Joseph knew that judgment is God's job and that it was not up to Joseph to take matters into his own hands, to get revenge, to settle the score with his brothers. God would be their ultimate judge in his time, in his way, and with absolute justice. Jesus taught, didn't he? Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. To judge comes from the Greek word, which means to make a distinction. And firstly, this is definitely a good thing to do, to make a distinction between right and wrong to be prudent in our decision-making, to make wise choices. And, and Paul writes and tells us to make judgments about all things. So it's biblical to seek to make a wise judgment. But what Jesus is saying is about being judgmental of people and making unfair criticism. He's warning against jumping to conclusions about other people, about pointing the finger, about delivering quiet criticisms to other people just to make us think we've got even. And the Joseph story reminds us and challenges us, where am I acting in the place of God? 
where do I have a judgmental and critical spirit? And it serves as a reminder to us to be watchful that we don't fall into this kind of temptation. And thirdly, forgiveness doesn't mean no boundaries. Joseph continues, you intended to harm me. So Joseph is straight with his brothers. You intended to harm me. He is calling out what they have done. He doesn't deny what they have done. He doesn't offer approval for what they've done. He doesn't excuse their actions. He doesn't pardon what they have done. He doesn't turn a blind eye to their actions. He hasn't forgotten what was done. Surely it's unrealistic to expect anyone to forget the trauma Joseph had suffered. He doesn't pretend that it hasn't hurt. And yes, he takes their wrongdoing seriously. Several of you will know that I'm a keen tennis player. And I talked about forgiveness with one of my tennis buddies, Keith, who amongst many of the things he has done in his life is a counsellor. Amidst all our normal Wednesday morning discussion about rugby, 70s rock music and putting the world to rights, I asked him about his take on forgiveness. And one of his main responses was the need to set boundaries. And particularly in Christian circles, we can so want to try to be meek and humble and accepting and loving that we don't want to say, no, sorry, that is too far. And so forgiveness is not letting people walk all over us to do whatever they want. No, forgiveness involves knowing and setting boundaries and speaking out accordingly. As Joseph said, you intended to harm me. Fourthly, and in a wider context, Joseph continues, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Again, Max Lucado writes, forgiveness comes easier with a wide angled lens. Joseph uses one to get the whole picture. He refuses to focus on the betrayal of his brothers without also seeing the loyalty of his God. It always helps to see the big picture. And those of you who are keen on walking will know this. Down in the valley, yes, you can get one view, but climb to the top of the hills and you get a whole panorama and a completely different perspective. I should say here, and um, if you've been doing the prayer course in your home group, we've learned, haven't we, that that perspective may take a long while to become clear, to see and understand how God works out good through the trials and difficulties in our lives. And so I think we can see why Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, which we prayed earlier, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Recognises that this process of forgiving can take time and we need to work at it. R.T. Kendall writes in his book, not only do we need daily forgiveness as we need daily bread, but we also need to pray daily to forgive others because doing this is a lifelong commitment. 
It is not easy, and no one said it would be easy. So Jesus understands this and so invites us to pray regularly to forgive others. Yes, we forgive others because God has forgiven us. But one of the other reasons is he knows the harm we do to ourselves by not forgiving. That bitterness and resentment which festers away, those sleepless nights rehearsing those arguments to make our point powerfully. Being on the edge, just looking for the opportunity to get our own back and that lack of peace which seeps into our lives. The US National Institutes of Health say, the negative health effects of unforgiveness are widely documented, which include, but are not limited to, stress, increased depression and anxiety, social isolation, and even compromised physical health due to stress on one's immune system. This is the second area that Keith mentioned as we took a break between our tennis sets, and he kindly forwarded a wonderful poem written by Desmond Tutu and his wife. And somehow I can imagine Joseph saying this too, and it seems a fitting way to conclude this talk this morning. I will forgive you. The words are so small, but there is a universe hidden in them. When I forgive you, all those cords of resentment, pain and sadness that had wrapped themselves around my heart will be gone. When I forgive you, you will no longer define me. You measured me and assessed me and decided that you could hurt me. I didn't count. But I will forgive you because I do count. I do matter. I am bigger than the image you have of me. I am stronger. I am more beautiful. I am infinitely more precious than you thought me. I will forgive you. My forgiveness is not a gift I am giving you. When I forgive you, my forgiveness will be a gift that gives itself to me. Amen.